Today is Wednesday, March 16th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, President Biden heads to Europe next week over Ukraine as Russia's UN resolution receives tepid response. You can be sure the Americans and the French are probably in agreement with Britain on this, that this resolution is going nowhere. Add to it that they really haven't discussed it with anybody. The UN accuses Myanmar's military of systematic rights violations amounting to war crimes and crimes against humanity. The report sets out Myanmar's uh, military and security forces' flagrant disregard for human life, bombarding populated areas with airstrikes and heavy weapons and a look at the challenges facing arab women as they continue their struggle for equality we'll have these stories and more next on international edition stay tuned white house press secretary jen Psaki has announced that president joe biden will travel to europe next week for face-to-face talks with european leaders about moscow's invasion of ukraine biden will meet with nato and european leaders in brussels on march 24th this as russia's ambassador to the u.n vasily nabenzia said Russia will stop its invasion when the goals of its special military operations are achieved, including demilitarization. Nabenzia also put forward a resolution regarding long-demanded safe corridors for civilians and access to humanitarian aid. For more, I spoke with VOA's UN correspondent Margaret Bashir, who says the Russian resolution received a cold reception from other members of the Security Council. The British ambassador, Dame Barbara Woodward, has already posted a small video of herself on Twitter saying, forget about it. So there's at least one veto, and the British hold the veto. Uh, And you can be sure the Americans and the French are probably in agreement with Britain on this, that this resolution is going nowhere. Add to it that they really haven't discussed it with anybody. They came to the Security Council this morning, on Tuesday morning, and said, we're putting this resolution in blue, which means it's in final form. And another ambassador came by, the Irish ambassador who's on the council, and reporters asked her, have you seen this draft? And she said, no, nobody's shown me anything. They haven't really discussed it with anybody either, which is not your standard practice. So at the end of the day, it's a bit of a publicity stunt. It's something we see actually rather frequently now from the Russians, particularly when it comes to Syria. If they don't like a humanitarian resolution on the delivery of, for instance, cross-border aid into Syria, they come with their own resolution that they know that they're going to push the Americans, the British, and the French to veto. So it's a little game that they've been playing for quite some time now, and now they're employing it in their prosecution of their war in Ukraine. And the mention of the war going on in Ukraine and the devastation that the Russian forces are causing in that country. They don't even say they're waging a war in public. They say it's a special military operation. In fact, the Russian ambassador repeated it again on Tuesday morning. It's a special military operation. They refused to call it a war, an invasion. And if you ask them, they were forced into this as if they're acting in self-defense by going into another country. So definitely no mention of it. But the Western version of the humanitarian resolution mentions the Russian invasion. What next is the United Nations doing in an attempt to see how this war will end or even get a ceasefire? Is there any movement on that front? In terms of negotiations, the Secretary General has repeatedly offered his good offices. He says he's available. But the Russians, in fact, have been attacking him quite a bit verbally lately because he's come out quite strongly, which is unusual for him, to be honest. He's come out quite strongly. He's not minced words. He said, in fact, on Monday that uh, the Russian military is responsible for the vast majority of civilian deaths and destruction. So he is pointing fingers, which he doesn't normally do, particularly at a permanent 
member of the UN Security Council, but he has been very vocal from the start of this. So the Russians don't see him as an honest broker anymore. You know, they're very unhappy with him. And they feel he's influenced basically by the West. On Monday, the Secretary General announced $40 million from a central emergency response fund that he's drawing on from the UN. And they've asked for money from donor countries as well, but they have been scaling up the World Food Program, the World Health Organization, numerous agencies, UNICEF, the Children's Agency, they're all there on the scene in Poland and Moldova and countries surrounding Ukraine and to some extent inside Ukraine where they can operate. And in fact, on Tuesday afternoon, there was some good news, large convoy with food aid and medical equipment and things from the International Committee of the Red Cross reached Ukraine and they say they'll be distributing it in the coming days. Thus, VOS UN correspondent Margaret Bashir speaking with me from New York. Russia has deployed mercenaries to African countries for years. New reports indicate some of those battle-hardened soldiers may be heading to Ukraine to take part in Russia's invasion of its neighbor. In this report, VOA Salem Solomon looks at what the inclusion of mercenaries into Ukraine might mean. As Russia continues its invasion of Ukraine, some observers are warning its forces may get support from an unexpected source, Russian-linked mercenaries stationed in Africa. For years, the Wagner Group, a private military organization with close ties to the Kremlin, has been operating in various African countries, including Libya, Mozambique, Sudan, and the Central African Republic. Now, as Russian President Vladimir Putin looks for added manpower for his invasion, experts say he may be calling some of these fighters to work closer to home. Philip Obaji, a correspondent for the Daily Beast based in Abuja, Nigeria, has been closely following the movement of Wagner mercenaries across several countries. In recent weeks, he has gotten multiple reports of this movement. My understanding right now is that taking missionaries from Central African Republic to Ukraine, it's a way of saying, well, you have the experience on the battlefield, you've been trained so well, you know, you've spent a lot of time in Africa and you'll be useful going to Ukraine. Obaji's reporting indicates approximately 500 mercenaries have left the Central African Republic to take part in the Ukraine invasion. Britain's Daily Mail reported that some of these fighters are part of a hit squad to assassinate Ukrainian officials, including the president. That reporting could not be confirmed. And CNN reports Russia plans to deploy 1,000 mercenaries to Ukraine, citing an unnamed U.S. official. The official told CNN Russian mercenaries that are already in Ukraine have, quote, performed poorly, end quote, and as many as 200 have been killed in the fighting. Despite this, Owaji says these fighters from Africa could still be valuable because of their experience. Wagner's track record in Africa includes accusations of extrajudicial killings, rapes, and other human rights abuses. Jack Margolin is the program director for C4ADS, a Washington-based nonprofit that studies transnational crime and conflict using publicly available data and emerging technology. He says while not a natural fit for the conventional war in Ukraine, they may be tasked to do things that Russia does not want linked to their regular forces. Whether or not they're called to Ukraine, Wagner forces continue to pose a threat to African countries. In a recent VOA interview, General Stephen Towson, the commander of U.S. Africa Command, warned of Wagner's brutal tactics. We have watched Wagner, this mercenary outfit, 
work on the African continent. We've watched them in the Central African Republic, Sudan, Libya. They don't follow anybody's rules but their own. They will exploit the country. They will create, uh, they will break laws. They will do uh, gross violations of human rights. They will kill innocents and civilians. Wagner's track record, General Towson added, is clear. They make countries less stable upon arrival. They seek to gain an economic benefit by exploiting natural resources, and they refuse to leave when asked. Despite the fog of war, analysts say they will be watching closely for any signs of mercenary activity in Ukraine. Salem Solomon, VOA News, Washington. The United Nations says nearly 3 million Ukrainians have left their country since Russia's invasion nearly a month ago in Europe's biggest refugee crisis since World War II. Most fled to neighboring countries, but increasingly many are moving further westward. For VOA, Lisa Bryant has the story from Paris. The train from Stuttgart is pulling into the Gare de l'Est train station in northern Paris, one of several arriving daily with a new influx of Ukrainian refugees. You, you want to go by yourself? Anastasia Stadozitska and her mother, Maria, are speaking to Red Cross workers here who greet the new arrivals. The two women have just made a marathon journey. We come from Kiev. The day uh, when uh, the TV, uh, say, TV tower was attacked, we go to Lviv. We spend, uh, I think, a week uh, in Lviv at our friends in safety, and then we go to Berlin, and then we go to Paris. It's a strange story, really. It's a strange picture. Just to travel around the Europe because of uh, one strange guy in, in the world. The guy she's referring to is Russian President Vladimir Putin, whose forces attacked Kyiv's radio station two weeks ago. His invasion has created a widening humanitarian crisis. Starozitska and her mother are both film directors. Their movie, The War of Chimeras, aired at international festivals. It's about the 2014 conflict in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region after pro-Russian separatists declared independence. It helped lay the foundations for today's fighting. We, we went to the war, the time in Donbass in 2014, and this is like uh, my personal story when uh, my boyfriend go, go to the war and I go after, after him. Uh, now, her friend is again fighting the Russians. Her father and grandfather found shelter in the western city of Lviv. Men of fighting age cannot leave the country. She and her mother are refugees. So we're really here to welcome them and to tell them that it's okay, that they're safe, and to orient them uh, depending on what they plan after. <laughs> Elodie Estev is with the French Red Cross. Her organization works with other Paris charities and city officials to help Ukrainians find shelter, medical assistance, and other services. France's SNCF railway, like others in Europe, offers refugees free transport. Some of them already know where they want to go. It could be another city in France, but it could be also another country. So we're here also with all the other, of course, to try to find a solution how to reach uh, this city, this country. Just a few thousand Ukrainians have found refuge in France, but their numbers are growing quickly. 
Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. The death in two weeks of two journalists killed in the line of duty covering the Russian-Ukrainian war brings to the fore the dangers faced by media personnel during conflicts. A video journalist for Fox News, Pierre Zazuski, was killed in Ukraine on Monday following the death of documentary filmmaker Brent Renaud two days ago. Hundreds of journalists have lost their lives in previous conflicts to bring the horrors of war to the public, but is their sacrifice worth the price and are there ways to better protect them while on the job? For more, I spoke with Babak Bahadur, an associate research professor at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. It takes a very brave individual to go into a war zone. You know, most people are going in the opposite direction. So journalists that go in, in that direction, you know, especially ones coming from abroad, are taking huge risks. There have been about 2,000 or so journalists and media workers killed in the past 30 years or so. And every year we get somewhere between 50 and 100 journalists and media workers killed, many of those in conflict zones. Very dangerous work. Is there a better way to protect journalists? There are some precautions journalists can take. Obviously, they can get more information before they go into, you know, a particular area. But with the nature of war, of course, you don't always know what's going to happen next. And because you're trying to cover warfare up close, there's only so much you can do to be completely protected. So there are some precautions journalists do take, but it's very difficult to take all precautions. You know, for example, they wear certain kinds of clothing. They identify themselves under the rules of war. You're not supposed to shoot a journalist if they identify themselves and they're not participating in the conflict. So obviously those are actions they can take, but nothing is 100% safe in a war zone, obviously. Are there some standard operating procedures for journalists in a war zone? They should obviously be seen as being neutral. They have to identify themselves in the clothes they wear. They have to, they should wear protective gear as much as possible. They have to obviously take precautions, getting as much information as possible before they go into a particular area to make sure it isn't, for example, a place where there's sniper fire taking place or shelling is not taking place there. So they can get intelligence information before they enter. But again, as I said, there's nothing that they can do that gives 100% certainty of safety. What about conflicts where one of the parties, for instance, Russia, is accusing the West of being biased? Is there an added danger for journalists, especially from the West, covering such conflicts? You know, that's a very good question. You know, it's, you don't always know the intentionality of the different combatants, you know, while the war is taking place. Sometimes uh, with additional research and investigation, groups like the Committee to Protect Journalists try to identify the motives of combatants. Most countries, generally speaking, do not intentionally fire on journalists. Uh, there could be exceptions. Of course, you can have rogue elements within your military. We are seeing, though, an increased number of journalists being killed. Again, this might not apply to this particular conflict, but in general, as you have more sub-state actors, rebel groups, terror groups, who do not follow the rules of war, and therefore we see more journalists being targeted intentionally in those scenarios. And do you think this will have a chilling effect on some journalists wanting to go to the war zones? You know, I think uh, it will definitely be a chilling effect for journalists in general to go, but, you know, the ones that do go know usually that risk. And you also get a lot of uh, local journalists who are participating, you know, in uh, working as partners. It could be freelancers who are on the contract of some kind, or it could be uh, local journalists who are hired by the news organizations. For example, something that happened on Monday involved a Fox News cameraman, but it also included a Ukrainian journalist who was killed. A lot of the news stories aren't talking about that. There's a Ukrainian journalist uh, by the name of Oksandra Kuvashenova, uh, who also died in the same incident. They were in the same car, and she was also killed. It was a, a second uh, Fox and journalist who was also injured. So we do have one way to address that to some degree is to have local journalists also participate, which is often the case in many conflict zones.
That's Babak Bado, an associate research professor at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. In other news, senior U.S. commanders tell Congress that the complete U.S. military withdrawals from Afghanistan and Somalia last year have made it more difficult for the U.S. to counter terror groups that aspire to attack Americans and its allies. General Stephen Townsend, head of U.S. Africa Command, told the Senate Armed Forces Committee on Tuesday that sending teams of U.S. forces into Somalia on a periodic basis is not efficient or effective and puts American troops at greater risk. General Frank McKenzie, head of the U.S. Central Command, said Islamic State militant groups has grown since the U.S. left Afghanistan and there are concerns about its ongoing development. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chine Rofo in Washington. In its first comprehensive human rights report since last year's coup, the United Nations said on Tuesday that Myanmar's military has engaged in systematic human rights violations, some of them amounting to war crimes and crimes against humanity. The spokeswoman for the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Ravina Shamdasani, says security forces have shown a flagrant disregard for human lives, using airstrikes and heavy weapons on populated areas and deliberately targeting civilians. The UN report is based on interviews with scores of victims of abuses and witnesses whose accounts were collaborated with satellite imagery, verified multimedia files and open source information. The military is continuing to engage in systematic and widespread human rights violations and abuses, some of which may amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. The report sets out Myanmar's uh, military and security forces' flagrant disregard for human life, bombarding populated areas with airstrikes and heavy weapons and deliberately targeting civilians, some of whom have been shot in the head, burned to death, arbitrarily arrested, tortured, or used as human shields. Meaningful action by the international community is urgently needed to stop yet more individuals from being stripped of their rights, their lives, and their livelihoods. The appalling breadth and the scale of violations of international law suffered by the people of Myanmar demand a firm, unified, and resolute international response. Mass killings have taken place. In July, in Sagang region, soldiers killed 40 individuals in a series of raids. Villagers found the remains of some victims with their hands and feet still tied behind their backs. In December, in Kaya state, soldiers burned the bodies of up to 40 men, women, and children. Villagers described discovering the remains in several trucks, with the bodies found in positions indicating that they had tried to escape and they were burned. That spokeswoman for the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Ravina Shamdasani. Every March, nations around the world acknowledge the work that women do and the history they have made in moving the cause of women's rights forward. Reporter Angie Omar examines challenges facing Arab women as they continue their struggle for equality. Female labor force participation rates in the Middle East and North Africa remain among the lowest in the world, despite growing evidence that giving women equal access to jobs boosts economic growth. Arab-speaking countries have made tremendous progress in terms of gender equality and education over the past few decades. But this has not led to an increase in economic participation for women. While Arab women have been at the forefront of political and social mobilization and national movements of their countries, they often remain excluded from public life. 
The Arab Center in Washington, D.C. used International Women's Day last week to explain the challenges facing Arab women at a special event. Lena Abirafe, a global women's rights expert and gender equality advocate, said Arab women are far from equality in education, employment, resources, privileges, and other areas. Poverty, conflict, insecurity, all of those things affect women and girls much more. In the economy, women's unemployment is higher, women are relegated to the informal sector, women do um, or be unpaid work. Abirafe stressed that no matter the kind of political system, democratic or autocratic, women's rights are lacking. She pointed out that two-thirds of the people who are illiterate are women because states do not provide them sufficient opportunities and because their societies and families restrict their education. To be able to finish the stuff that we haven't been able to finish, to be able to guarantee that, that in terms of access to education, girls are not discriminated against and not pulled out of school at the, at the sign of the, fir- of the first emergency, that women have full rights to health care, including sexual and reproductive health and rights. We need to own our own bodies. Yara Asi is an assistant professor at the School of Global Health Management and Informatics at the University of Central Florida in the United States. She said religious factors in the Arab and Muslim worlds are only part of the explanation for the poor status of women. She notes that other factors are involved, including differences between urban and rural life, different types of households, the education level of parents, as well as economic conditions and state structures. And, you know, religion is, of course, a piece of this answer, but it does not explain the diversity in how religion is practiced around the region and, of course, by Muslim women that don't live in the region and how women's freedoms have vacillated over time, you know, including in just the past few decades. Asi notes that women usually are expected to take care of children, care for the elderly, and manage their households without help from family, society, or the state. Asi added that when women are in the workplace, they're subjected to harassment and passed over for promotions. They also cannot access adequate health care, have restrictions on their travel, and often cannot properly use social services if they're available. That was Angie Omar. From Cairo. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. This is Science in a Minute. The structure of Earth is like a layer cake. There's the crust, mantle, and core. The mantle, according to the University of Oregon, is 2,900 kilometers thick. Geologists have found evidence of two massive and oddly shaped blob-like forms within the mantle. These geological anomalies are called Large Low Shear Velocity Provinces, or LLSVPs. One is located beneath Africa and the other under the Pacific Ocean. Researchers from Arizona State University have released a study that provides fresh insight into these blobs. They say the one under Africa is a thousand kilometers higher than the other and may have been rising in recent geological time. 
The researchers theorize that their sizes may be due to a difference in density, composition, and evolution. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. They're still trying to figure out what are the specific policies from the White House. VOA Asia, your daily digest of top Asia stories. Beijing has especially hazardous levels of air pollution. Blending American and Asian perspectives. China is protecting wildlife. Original reports and series. Education, health, technology. Stories that mean something to your daily life. VOA Asia. International Edition on the Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of all events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com. Until next time, I am Chinedwaf in Washington, wishing you a wonderful day.